Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the last thousand years, no author has created a more beautiful and comprehensive vision of Christian virtue than Dante. While there are just too many great books to read them all in one lifetime, no classical education is complete without a journey through the Divine Comedy. So that's why I'm excited to tell you that on January 29th, my friend Joshua Gibbs will begin the Divine Comedy for Beginners. It's a 12-week online class which covers the whole of Dante's most celebrated work. The comedy, as you know, is an epic which can be reread endlessly and understood on many levels. But the Divine Comedy for Beginners is tailored for readers who are venturing through the comedy for the very first time. The Divine Comedy for Beginners is available from gibbsclassical.com to students aged 15 and up. Of course, if you're a college student or an adult, you're more than welcome to take the class as well. For more information, head over to gibbsclassical.com. Again, that's gibbsclassical.com. Hello and welcome to Close Reads. We are so glad that you are joining us for Walker Percy's the moviegoer winner of the 1962 national book award we are on part five and the epilogue the concluding episode before our q a my name is tim mcintosh and i'm heidi white we are so glad that you could join us heidi welcome back to the show final podcast before we hit our q a are you ready are you ready are you ready are you ready i am ready i was born ready that's right you i'm a born true ready. modern <laughs> born born ready being a true modern um before we get into today's podcast i want to remind people that this show is supported in large part by a group of faithful patreon donors uh our patreon donors not only allow heidi and myself to be part of the show but they also help pay for the extraordinary editing and sound mixing done by our faithful comrade logan green that's right our many talented logan green um if you're not a podcast excuse me a patreon supporter it's really easy to find on patreon so if you go to patreon.com and just search close reads the name of our podcast you'll find different tiers in which you can support the show It'd be a wonderful Christmas gift, Heidi. I'll tell you right Agreed. now, I, I would love to find that in my stocking. I would really An appreciate experience that. experience rather than just clutter, right? A true yes. Oh my goodness, year-long yes. investment and experience. Well said. And we are doing right now on the Patreon episodes, David and I and the fearless and wise uh, Ian Andrews are making our way through Lord of the Rings. And we are nearly finished. We're on the downward slope of uh, the Fellowship of the Ring and just having the best time being Tolkien nerds. It's awesome. Like I'm loving it. But going even deeper than just Tolkien nerddom, um, but really getting into the literary and the philosophical and even the religious questions of the, I mean, absolutely unmatched um, Lord of the Rings series. So please come and join us over there, folks. 
And those Patreon podcasts that Heidi just mentioned are only available to Patreon supporters mm-hmm. of the podcast. That's so right. that's one of the many bonuses the you receive if you do sign up. <laughs> you get to be part of the inner ring. Pun intended. Lord that's of the right. Rings pun intended. Thank you. Heidi, here we are at um, part five in the epilogue of Walker Percy's The Moviegoer, in which <laughs> our sometimes malcontent, sometimes hero, sometimes <laughs> anti-hero, Beaks Bowling, kind of wraps up this search that he's been on that began in chapter one of our book. And we start the beginning of part five with a complaint from Aunt Emily against modern culture. And I, my question for you, Heidi, is going to be, what do we do with this complaint from Aunt Emily? Because her relationship with Banks has been complicated. Um, she, in some ways, is kind of, she's urging him toward a more serious life, a more robust life, a more ethical life. And Binks clearly struggles with that. You know, on the other hand, there's something about Aunt Emily that does not rest well with Banks. He's not at peace with her. I, I think my contention has been that she is kind of the exemplar of the modern social kind of stoic code that's just can't really survive in the modern age. That's, that's kind of what I think Binks's complaint against his aunt Emily is, but she has this, this diatribe kind of in favor of her class and against modern culture. And I'm going to ask you to read it. Uh, for those of you who are following along, it it's, falls entirely on page 223. Um, I'm going to ask you to read it, Heidi, and then when we come back, I'm going to ask you, what do we do with it? <laughs> what exactly do we do with this complaint? Hmm. Hmm. All right. Here goes. Top of page 223. I will also plead guilty to another charge. The charge is that people belonging to my class think they're better than other people. You're damn right we're better. We're better because we do not shirk our obligations either to ourselves or to others. We do not whine. We do not organize a minority group and blackmail the government. We do not prize mediocrity for mediocrity's sake. Oh, I am aware that we hear a great many flattering things nowadays about your great common man. You know, it has always been revealing to me that he is perfectly content to be so to be called because that's exactly what he is the common man. And when I say common, I mean common as hell. Our civilization has achieved a distinction of sorts. It will, re- it will be remembered not for its technology, nor even its wars, but for its novel ethos. Ours is the only civilization in history which has enshrined mediocrity as its national ideal. Others have been corrupt, but leave it to us to invent the most undistinguished of corruptions. No orgies, no blood running in the street, no babies thrown off cliffs. No, we're sentimental people and we horrify easily. True, our moral fiber is rotten. Our national character stinks to high heaven, 
but we are kinder than ever. No prostitute ever responded with a quicker spasm of sentiment when our hearts are touched, nor is there anything new about thievery, lewdness, lying, adultery. What is new is that in our time, liars and thieves and whores and adulterers wish also to be congratulated and are congratulated by the great public if their confession is sufficiently psychological or strikes a sufficiently heartfelt and authentic note of sincerity. Ours is the only civilization in history which has enshrined mediocrity as its national ideal. Some venom coming from Aunt Emily. Uh, Heidi, what did you do with this when you read it? So I'm, I think that I can be guilty of the sins of Aunt Emily. Mm. Um, I think as I was reading this, I felt particularly convicted because I think everything she said could have been written in Mm. June or November of 2020. Mm. Yeah. I think she's right about everything, but I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I'm right. Right. Like I think that Mm -hmm. this is my big struggle is the same struggle that aunt Emily has. These are my own sins. I'm confessing on the air here that, I look at the failures of modernity. I called myself a true modern at the top of the show, and I'm sure that that's true. But I feel like I've spent a long, many long years of my adult life repenting of being a modern. I mean, like, mm. give me back a vision for the sacramental life. Um, and part of that has been very redeeming to me because it has drawn me to God, which I think that the pilgrimage Mm. of the Christian life ought to be to return to God and to see things through his eyes Um, and to see the world as it was created to be, to participate in the life of Christ. And I think that that kind of repentance from the modern person has, has been a true redemptive journey for me. On the other hand, I am very guilty of reverse chronological snobbery in which I think that the old ways were better and that there should and ought to be this return to the old traditions Mm. of, of the culture and that jettisoning them is never the answer. And if you jettison the good of a culture, you find yourself with a worship of mediocrity. And Mm. I think that I believe what she's saying and think it's true. Mm. But that could also just be my own fears for our culture, my own participation in this particular sin of hers. Um, But I was very struck by um, at the, at the end here of the end of her little rant um, Mm -hmm. when she says true, I think everything that she says here is a hundred percent true. And I lament Mm. it. When she says true, our moral fiber is rotten. Our national character stinks to high heaven. True now, true then, right? Nor is there anything new about thievery, lewdness, lying, adultery. What is new is that in our time, liars and thieves and whores and adulterers wish also to be congratulated and are congratulated by the great public. In every way, I think that this is true in the public square, yeah. um, in our uh, and in popular culture, and what we watch on TV, what we find entertaining. You know, even this kind of cultural idea that there is no such thing as 
sin. Um, so I'm, I gotta be honest, I'm kind of with her on this. Yeah. So you feel kind of, and I, and I'll admit to feeling the same way. You feel kind of torn here, sort of like, boy, Aunt Emily, gosh, it's kind of, it's kind of elitist. It's, I mean, you're like, it's open elitism. Um, it's, it's scornful. Uh, it's just so, it's just withering and there's just not a touch of grace in it. And I know, very self-righteous. And, and I see the, I see, but don't you think that's what novels are for, right? So many novels just (laughs) so incisively lay bare the human soul and it's Mm. sins and transgressions and, um, but but I think there is within me a disdain for for the belief that the common man should and ought to remain common. I think we mm. ought to lift our eyes to better things, and that's why I say that's why I say I think that part of that journey for me away from modernity, or at least my intention to try to move away from thinking like a modern, is. Um, is is part of that's holy and part of it is self-righteous. And sometimes for me, it's very hard to distinguish between the two. And, um, and I, you know, God help me, Lord have mercy on me. Please, please pray for me, Tim and our listeners. Because as I read this, I think, oh man, I see her self-righteousness. But then I'm like, man, preach girl. So this is, <laughs> this is my eternal problem. So now I have laid bare my own soul that has been laid bare by this novel. So tell me your <laughs> tell me your response to Aunt I'm going to cheat a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to cheat a little bit because the ep, the the prologue of our book had a quote from Soren Kierkegaard. Mm. You know me well enough to know that I'm a big fan of his. And Kierkegaard had this kind of view. Let me first start by saying you just gave this very heartfelt and open um, and vulnerable you know, statement about how you feel about Aunt Emily. And now I'm going to like zoom us up into the stratosphere. This is like, this is what they call grinding the gears or double clutching in the middle of a podcast. Kierkegaard had this notion that we all exist kind of in one of three stages in life. Um, the first one is that you, it's he called it the aesthetic stage. You just kind of enjoy the pleasures of life, the physical pleasures, the mental pleasures, you tend to get bored of those things pretty quickly. So you kind of rotate through them, you know, from playing cards to fine wine to, you know, smoking cigars, whatever. So you rotate through those things kind of quickly because otherwise you'll get bored. Eventually you do get bored enough. And if you're willing, you have to make a move. And that move is toward a more ethical point of view. That ethical point of view is there's rights and wrongs and you hold yourself accountable and you feel like there's maybe some design in the universe that was put there by maybe by a divine power. Um, and you live your life according to that kind of ethical code as best you can. I think Aunt Emily, that's where she is. I think that she is fully convinced that the moral that there's a moral frame to the universe that the country that she's a part of has forsaken that moral cast 
and she's disgusted by it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I think Binks is with her. I think Binks, I mean, I think, I think Binks admires the kind of moral cast that she sees and that she um, fights for in their discussions. But I think also there is a way that Binks has been seeking throughout the book. This is what the search has been in some way that I think is higher than just the ethical stage. Kierkegaard would call it the religious stage. It's, it's not um, a violation of an ethical mode of life, but it's something that's kind of superior. He takes, I'm, it's, I'm like totally ramping on Kierkegaard, but just bear with me because I just, I, he's been so influential in my life. He's been really influential on Kierkegaard, on, on Walker Percy. I think it's worth like a moment's discursus. Um, Kierkegaard was obsessed with the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, the father of Judaism, the father of Israel, the kind of like root of the Christian faith. And what's the signal event for Abraham? It's he was willing to put his son on an altar and to kill his son, to offer his son as sacrifice. When Kierkegaard reads this story, he, he's like, he's really jarred by it. There's this, there's this kind of, there's this part of him that says, hold on a second. Let's look at what Abraham is really going to do here. And what he's really going to do here is he's going to commit child sacrifice. Like not just an ethical violation of some, my, like a minor mishap. I stuck glue on the bottom of my desk at, at school. This is not the sort of ethical violation that Abraham was willing to do. It's perhaps like the worst thing that you could do. It's horrible. And so th- what, what Kierkegaard says is, well, the Christian scriptures praise Abraham because Abraham was willing to trust God so much that he stepped out of this kind of like ethical mode and was willing to follow God entirely, even to do something unethical. Now, he had the special privilege of actually hearing directly from God. Most of us don't have that. But still, I think there's kind of a clue here that I think, I kind of think Binks has been living an aesthetic life, first stage, respects the second life, Aunt Emily, but really is after the third life, the religious, the religious mode of being. That's how I read this section from from Aunt Emily. I agree. I think you're exactly right. Because I think that the, the problem with Aunt Emily is that she's willing to stop right where transcendence and the search begins, mm-hmm. right? She mm-hmm. wants to take the best out of a culture and out of social convention and out of privilege. And, and she wants that to be the meaning and the code of life. It's exactly what you said, this stoic code. And I think to your point, I don't think you're going off into the stratosphere. I think that it's that what you're saying is very practical and it's particularly practical to people in the classical renewal. And I'm going to speak directly to those Mm. people right now, because the temptation for people like us is always the sins of Aunt Emily. It is to stop 
with the culture and not see through it into the transcendence and into the life of God, which is what we ought to see. When we read Plato, we ought to see through Plato into the life of Christ. That's what we were talking about with a Christian classical renewal. This is not just classical education. It's a Christian classical kind of mindset um, that, that, that we have these cultural offerings, not just to make us into Aunt Emily's, but to make us into the people of God. And, and that I think is what you're getting. It's what Kierkegaard was getting at. Um, there's all kinds of failures in culture that have led us to where we are today. Culture is never, ever, ever enough. And, and I think with Aunt Emily, I, because I love those old things so much, I do have a temptation to stop where transcendence begins. Right. And Mm. to, and to just camp Mm. out with like, what was it that Sam told his wife as he was uh, in the book and when, when he's lying there close to death with his um, compound fracture in his leg and he's waiting Mm. for help. And, and he says to his wife, something along the lines of like, don't give up on the Italian masters and the early masterpieces of Bach. Um, Yeah. And and I just thought that was like the saddest story in the whole book that, that, right. this, that right. like there's this man on the brink of death and that's the thing that motivated Banks to go on a search. But for him, the last thing he's thinking about as he's slowly dying is to encourage his wife to, uh, to go to the symphony, right? And it becomes yeah. no motivation to the search, but only, only a good story to tell at dinner parties. And yeah. I think in some ways that's like worse than a, uh, this, and I'm, again, I'm indicting myself here. That's what, what I think that Walker Percy is doing is saying, that's actually a really bad sin. Don't do that. Mm. Don't get so lost and obsessed with the culture that you forget about the search. And with all, to your point, with all of Binks's uh, failures throughout the book, with all of he's so this unattractive protagonist and he's so difficult to love and all those things, in a sense, he's, he's the one we should imitate. He's the modern hero, the man who's like, this is my culture and I'm still going on a search, even in the wasteland. Yeah. And I'm not just going to camp out in the castle. Yeah. I like, that's great phrasing. Uh, he's willing to go on the search in the, in the wasteland and not just stay in the castle. I love that. Heidi, the probably the most famous paragraph from this book is on page 228 and it seems like the right time to read it. Hmm. I want to read it, but preface it by saying, I think most, I have seen this blurb, these couple paragraphs read as kind of the, um, maybe a synopsis of the moviegoer because the moviegoer, the book is so hard to say, what is this book about? It's really hard to say. And I think sometimes people will kind of proof text these following paragraphs, but I don't think they're really what the book is about. I think that they're a complaint, a justified complaint that kind of echo Aunt Emily, but I don't think that they're really the solution. So mm-hmm. I'm going to read this. And then at some point soon, I'd like to talk about what we think the book is presenting as a solution to this malaise that Banks has been experiencing. So before, so, before yeah. you read it, if it's, this is the passage that I think you're going to read, yeah. um, anybody who doesn't want to hear 
any rough language yeah, should maybe step away or fast forward 30 seconds because there are some, and I, I think you should read it with the words because I think they're important. But if you're yeah, sensitive you're right. to profanity or you have any little ones in your house, just know that's coming. Yeah. So I'm going to start it right off by defining one of the words that I'll read, merd, which is the French word for shit. Um, just in case you haven't, if you, if you don't have French friends, foul mouth French friends, um, you might not know what that I'm word like means. 50, so. Top, of, <laughs> I'm just Top of 228. Today is my 30th birthday and I sit on the ocean wave in a schoolyard and wait for Kate and think of nothing. Now, in the 31st year of my dark pilgrimage on this earth and knowing less than I ever knew before, having learned only to recognize Mared when I see it, having inherited no more from my father than a good nose for Mared, for every species of shit that flies, my only talent, smelling Mared from every corner, living in fact in the very century of Mared, the great shithouse of scientific humanism, where needs are satisfied, everyone becomes an anyone, a warm and creative person, and prospers like a dung beetle, and 100% of pe people are humanists, and 98% believe in God, and men are dead, dead, dead. And the malaise has settled like a fallout, and what people really fear is not that the bomb will fall, but that the bomb will not fall. On this, my 30th birthday, I know nothing, and there is nothing to do but fall prey to desire. Nothing remains but desire, and desire comes howling down Elysian fields like a mistral. My search has been abandoned. It is no match for my aunt, her rightness and her despair, her despairing of me and her despairing of herself. Whenever I take leave of my aunt after one of her serious talks, I have to go find a girl. We get this is very close to the end of the book, Heidi, mm -hmm. and there's this kind of sense that Banks in some ways kind of agrees with his aunt. And at the same time, there's something else. And, or maybe, maybe it's a different way of, I should say it a different way. I think he perhaps like kind of acknowledges the kind of rectitude of his aunt, but at the same time, rejects it as not acceptable. And the only thing that really he's got left is desire. Desire is the only thing that he's really got left. And this to me is kind of the beginning of the turn. Um, shortly after this, he goes in search of Sharon, his secretary, who he went to the beach with. And he meets this other woman, the roommate of Sharon. He finds out that Sharon has uh, a fiance. And it seems like his kind of desire is, even his desire is sort of thwarted. He recognizes in some way that kind of like the futility of this pursuit of desire, this pursuit of Sharon. She's not even really interested in him after all. Um, and so he's thwarted again in kind of like trying to, in pursuing his desire um, and forsaking this search, he even fails in 
like his attempt to kind of like gratify himself. Right. And we get to the end, we get to the end of the book and things in some very subtle way begin to shift for Binks. Did you see that also? I do, but I want to stick with this. You you read this and said, this is essentially, you said it is not a thesis statement. Mm. It's not the answer. It's the problem. Can you Mm. expand on what you mean by that? I think that Binks throughout the book has had, um, he has been in pursuit while operating in kind of complete luxury while never like fearing um, for his life. Uh, he's living in a world where 100% of the people are humanists and 98% of people believe in God and men are dead, dead, dead. It's so haunting. It's so haunting that they're. <laughs> I'm trying to kind of encapsulate this book in like a few fell phrases, and I and I can't really do it. I think that all of his physical needs are cared for. Everyone is kind of a good person in this world, um, and yet everyone is dead. There's something lifeless about the world that he's inhabiting and he doesn't know which way to turn. And I think that in recognizing that he does not, he cannot, even his desire, his desire to fulfill his desire, even when that is thwarted, I think that's kind of as close to rock bottom as it gets. It's not the rock bottom of an alcoholic. It's not the rock bottom of a bankrupt. It's just rock. He's he's hit rock bottom with, the pursuit of his search. Right. I think, I think you're onto something there and that does go back again to you need, you need your aunt Emily in this book. The book wouldn't work without her. Right. Because Mm -hmm. of the conversation they have when she kind of throws in his face, what about these things we've read together? What about how I told you about goodness, truth, and beauty? What about reading the classics? Don't you care about any of those things? And he's just like, no, I don't. I don't care about any of them. I don't love them. I don't. And I was actually, it's funny. I was just having this conversation with my students. I teach at a high school class and we're teaching the, um, uh, I'm teaching the classics right now. So we're reading Plato's me notes, the first Mm. Plato of the year that we're reading. Um, and a lot of these students, it's their first encounter with classical philosophy on their own kind of away from mom and dad. Um, if they've, if they've read it before and we are reading about, um, Plato's theory of knowledge as, uh, knowledge is recollection, virtue is knowledge, that kind of thing. And, um, one of the things, uh, that we talked about today actually was Socrates's belief in what he calls true opinion. Um, Mm. and, and a true opinion in classical philosophy is when you don't know something, you don't know, you don't know, know, know it scientifically, but you believe it and it is an article of faith to you. And it is what you truly in your heart believe to be true and are willing to defend it. Something like what happens to you after you die, right? 
and the soul separates from the body and goes as Christians, we believe the soul goes uh, before the judgment seat of Christ at some mm. point, and that we will be welcomed into the kingdom of God as a result of our faith and, and, and all sad things will come untrue and there will be a great restoration and all the things we believe. Uh, and we, that is our true opinion. But we do not know that the same way that we know something no scientifically. Water is wet. Yes. Yeah. And I think what <laughs> what we have in in modernity and specifically in the moviegoer is like a crisis of true opinion, right? We have no more true opinions. Why? Because of the passage that you read, because we've become so mm. adept as individuals and as a society uh, in identifying, excuse me, I'm about to say the word, shit. Mm. Right? It all stinks to high heaven to us. We don't believe it anymore. It's gone. And there's lots of reasons for that. We talked about that when we've read Hemingway and, you know, these historical reasons having to do with World War II and these and which and roots that go all the way back to the Enlightenment. And this these this idea that somehow it's heroic to reject the true opinions of the past, either individually or culturally. And then Walker Percy's asking the question, what do you do if you do not have scientific knowledge nor true opinion? Mm. And what I think she's asking him is like, I tried to teach you my true opinion. I tried. Yeah. I tried to teach it to you. I tried to gift it to you. I tried to like make this a legacy for you. I don't want you to be the modern man. I don't want you to be the common man. And I tried to save you from that. And, and she has all this true opinion and he's just like, that's just bullshit. It's all bullshit. Right. So that that's the big crisis. And it's not just Binks's crisis. It's a crisis that is ongoing to this day. And I, I think it's, it's very tragic. And I think what Percy is trying to do, and I think he somewhat succeeds in this book. And I'd like to talk about that. And many of the mid-century Catholic novelists, I think, succeed extraordinarily well in this, is, is to try to kind of reframe the modern dilemma as a pathway to God without having mm. to get to God through Aunt Emily's path. They're saying, is it possible to not love goodness, truth, and beauty, to not read the classics? Is it possible to find God just through the search? And that's what Kierkegaard, I think, is trying to argue for with his existentialism. And I, there's, there's so much there. There's this very rich tradition there in 20th century. And I don't actually have a true opinion on this. Can you find God without going through some kind of artifact that celebrates transcendence and brings you to him? That wasn't my path. I found it in the Mm. old ways, the old books, Mm. the old things, right? But some people like Binks Bowling get there through their existential crisis of belief. And that, you know, and the whole point is like, just get there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like our goal isn't to become cultured people. That's yeah. a fine goal, but it's not the goal of a Christian education, Christian classical education. Um, so, and if if we have listeners who don't care about Christian classical education, that's fine too. I just know right. that's kind of our field outside of doing this podcast. So, and and I think Heidi bringing it up now is really important because I think 
more savvy practitioners of the kind of Christian classical tradition recognize there's a fissure in the middle of it, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, Christians have long maintained that you can kind of, what was that? I think the early Christians used a phrase like plundering Egypt. Plundering the Egyptians. When you yep, read, came from the church fathers. When you read the great, yeah, mm-hmm. right. The great classic texts that are like pagan, that are polytheistic, mm-hmm. Um, they have great things to teach, incredible things to teach. Who would deny that Homer uh, is profoundly edifying? But even that is, Christians have always kind of had this kind of, I don't know, tortured relationship with the pagan classics because also full of all sorts of like (laughs) horrible things, horrible things. The gods sleeping with each other, killing you know, like raping young women and turning them into fawns. You know, there's, there's, you can't, there, it cannot be a wholesale embrace. And so I think in this book also, that kind of um, distinction between the finest, I'll call them pagan things, the things of Aunt Emily, mm-hmm. um, the, the finest things that Aunt Emily have to offer, I think are still imminent. They're not transcendent. Mm -hmm. I think they're imminent in a way that she would say something like, um, look, I belong to my class and we're of a high, we're, we're a better sort of people because we've had the ability to kind of assimilate the best wisdom of the best traditions and apply it to our lives and apply it to our habits and apply it to our moral code. And we've come out from that wealthy, comfortable, and strong. That's who we are. I'm not ashamed to, I'm not ashamed to, to say that, to own that. I belong to a better class of people. I'm sorry. I've got to interrupt myself right now. There are all the, I, I'm, I'm living in Atlanta. I see political ads all the time. Each candidate is lifting quotes from the other one that clearly they're having to edit really hard to mm-hmm. get their opponents to be saying what they want their opponents to be saying so they can attack them. And I'm just realizing now how easy it would be on this podcast to just lift what I just said. I'm better. I'm, I'm of a higher class. Right. I've <laughs> embraced the best of all these traditions and applied them to my lives. And that's why I'm rich and powerful. You are speaking ironically no, I'm <laughs> You are not... Ironically, right? Yes. To my political opponents, I say to you, do not misquote me. Um, so I think that like that that the kind of in this book, the Binks is in this dilemma of acknowledging in some way that Aunt Emily has kind of achieved her position for a reason. She had, there is some sort of like a wisdom and a, and a, um, something admirable about the strictness of her code. And yet at the same time, it is lacking. I mean, just to put a fine point on it, that, that there's that scene in Schindler's list where the German who is running the, um, concentration camp is listening to i can't remember what it is but he's listening to records of brahms before he goes out into the yard and orders the slaughter of a hundred jews that's right the german were marvelously cultured people the nazis were marvelously cultured people i should say not germans the the nazis were marvelously cultured people 
and it was not their salvation. No. And it did not bar them from graphic, horrible deeds. Yes. And I think that that is just as much under the microscope here in this book that as, as Bing says, kind of aimless and self-centered search in some ways on Emily is just as self-centered as he is, Mm. but self-centered from the kind of privileged conservative point of view of this is, you know, this is my culture and you can pry it from my cold dead hands. Yeah. And that, and, and you Binks have got to get it together and carry this on to the next generation. Um, and And I think that that is a particular sin that to the classical tradition is prone to. Um, And uh, I am an avid defender of the cultural legacy. And it would be, in my opinion, a horrible tragedy to lose, say, the the canon of Shakespeare for the rest for the rest of human knowledge right right right. and 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 i think that there are people who would like to see that happen and 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 are on some kind of moral crusade to do so right and i would defend that but i don't i so that's where i think man i like i could be prone to the sins of aunt emily without a bigger vision for the Christian life without a, a, a vision of transcendence, without, as you're pointing out through Kierkegaard, the kind of the knowledge of the Holy one that, that puts those things into sharp relief and asks us to lay down our most treasured kind of precious, the precious to use <laughs> Tolkien's words, like on the altar of sacrifice. And, and I think that so many modern novelists, capital M modern have done that, have said, the old traditions need to be laid down and the new progressive ideology needs to be laid down on the altar. It all needs to die because none of it can survive in the light of God. Like it has to be, it has to be redeemed or bought back because there's particular sins on either side. And I think this, this book does a great job of displaying that in like the lives of ordinary people. To that point, I'd like to read mm-hmm. another paragraph. This is the final paragraph, a couple of paragraphs from the last chapter before the epilogue. Um, Banks and Kate are kind of, they're resolving to get married and they're sitting near this church and kind of as a sidebar of action, a black man drives up in front of the church, gets out, goes inside of the church Binks and Kate continue this conversation. And then the focus of the novel's attention goes to the black man as he exits back into his car, having left church. So last uh, line on page 234 to the end of the chapter. The Negro has already come outside. His forehead is an ambiguous sienna color and pied. It is impossible to be sure that he received ashes. When he gets in his mercury, he does not leave immediately, but sits looking down at something on the seat beside him. A sample case? An insurance manual. I watch him closely in the rearview mirror. It is impossible to say why he is here. Is it part and parcel of the complex business of coming up in the world, or is it because he believes that God himself is present here at the corner of Elysian Fields and Bon Enfant? Or... Is he here for both reasons, 
through some dim, dazzling trick of grace, coming for the one and receiving the other as God's own importunate bonus? It's impossible to say. It's a beautiful ending. The book, it's a really beautiful ending. And even that ending, Binks still does not have a verdict about why the man went into the church. Did he do it because that's his, like the custom of his upbringing? Did he do it because he is a knight of faith, you know, acting in accordance with um, his desire to commune with God? Binks doesn't know. Binks doesn't know. But those last lines, they just, there's a glimmer of hope there. For me, there's a real glimmer of hope there. Is it part and parcel of the complex business of coming up in the world? Or is it because he believes that God himself is present here at the corner of Elysian Fields and Bon Enfant? Or is he here for both reasons? Through some dim, dazzling trick of grace, coming coming for the one and receiving the other as God's own important bonus. It's impossible to say. Heidi, in the epilogue, uh, there's an exchange that Binks has with uh, his family. Um, His half-brother Lonnie has died, and the children are asking Binks, what's going to, what, What's going to happen? Binks is, I mean, uh, Lonnie's gone. Uh, what should we expect? And I'm, I'm going to read another section from 240. Um, one of the children is speaking to Binks. Denise casts about. Binks, he says, and then appears to forget. When our Lord raises up us up in the last day, will Lonnie still be in a wheelchair or will he be like us? He'll be like you. You mean he'll be able to ski? The children cock their heads and listen like old men. Yes. Hurrah, cry the twins. That to me is different mm-hmm. from Binks. That strike you as different? Yeah. His response, he'll be like you. That's That's... That's an answer. I think so. That's not. It's, he didn't waffle. It seems like an answer. I, I I do think so. Doesn't this whole this whole epilogue reminds me so much of Brideshead, the epilogue in Brideshead when it's not. Oh, how so? When the story ends with uh, kind of a turn within the story, mm-hmm. um, and for in this book in the moviegoer, it's a gain because he's going to marry Kate. And he's kind of, you know, out of trouble with Sant. Um, and in Brideshead, it's a it's a loss, right? Because he loses Julia to the faith and he's angry about it. Um, right. And, but then there's the epilogue when he returns to Brideshead and he goes into the chapel and there's the little light burning. Um, and the implication is that he has lit a candle and that he is, he's converted to the faith. Um mm. And that it is all of these, and what here's what I love about Brides, you know, it's my favorite novel ever, and I didn't get to do it on Close Reads, which is something I'm going to, you know, feel sad about till the day I die. <laughs> um, so, but he has this, 
the implication of the story, it's not ever stated, is that all of these series of losses are the actual thing that can, that brought him to conversion. The loss of Julia, mm. the loss of Sebastian, the, the, the losses that he went through in his life, those are the things that lead him to conversion, not whatever great grand mountaintop experience that he had, which isn't told to us in the novel. But the real story of the faith is the losses. It's his encounter with the fall and and um and have the participation in the suffering of Christ that brings him to the life of Christ. And I am and it's ambiguous. It's left ambiguous. Right. You have to be paying attention. In some ways, in some ways, and this is why I think the, the mid-century Catholic novelists are so brilliant. If you don't want to see the conversion, you don't have to. Right? Oh, yeah. And I love that. I think that that's so powerful. The end of the affair. I mean, the end of the, the affair is the same way. And so is Graham, anything by Graham Greene. Yeah. Um, the power and the glory is the same. If you want to sit there and smell the it, bullshit, you, you can. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's no ramming down the throat, but if you're looking for grace and if you're looking for the sacrament, it's there to find, mm. but mm. it's like this treasure that's hidden in the field, right? It's like the pearl of great price. Mm. And, and I love that because that is the faith and there's, it is a treasure hidden in the field that has to be dug up and believed in. It has to be embraced in faith. It has to be sought after and it's very hard fought. And if you just want to sit there and smell the shit, go for it. That's the modern yeah. man, right? And I think that that's, that's what we have here. I think there's a true convert. I think there's plenty of clues that lead us to say he has, he is still on the search, but he's found God because the search yeah. isn't, the search continues. I feel like I'm searching more than ever for truth than I mm. ever have the deeper I get into the Christian life. And that I think is he's honoring the fact that he's still on a search. Um, so anyway, what is your opinion? Do you see a conversion here? I do see a conversion. I wonder if, uh, I don't think there's been a mountaintop experience. I agree with you there. Something has changed. I, I almost think that Binks is now willing to kind of shift. Um, how do I say it? I think he's willing to accept the Catholic church as his teacher. I don't know that he is um, fully on board yet. I don't hear you suggesting that. I right. don't hear you suggesting that. He's not like that. a devout, you know, yeah, insufferable right, right, right. convert. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I don't think he's, I don't think he's there yet, but I can imagine him in a year, in five years and 10, I can imagine him being an insufferable convert or a quite insufferable towards peace. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. But I think that he, and I think he might be at a place now. And of course, um, Kate is going to be a large part of this where I think that the old paths that he was searching down and his kind of escapist into his, his escapism into desire. I think that the search has been partly rewarded, and his quest to gratify himself through pursuing his desire has been stunted. I don't know. It, it's always going to be a temptation. It's always going to be uh, a glimmering attraction for him, but I don't think that he holds out as much 
hope for distractions he did in say chapter three when he got in his car with Sharon and they went speeding off to the beach. I don't know that that holds as much glamour to him as it did. What do you, how do you reconcile the epilogue and his decision to marry Kate mm-hmm. um, with the, you know, his great enemy of the first part of the book, which is the everydayness? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think that he, in some ways, is fully accepting that great enemy, the everydayness. And I think that his, let's call it a conversion, let's be generous and let's call it a conversion. I think his hope is that that conversion will kind of illuminate everydayness with some glimmer of transcendence. I don't think that's clearly in the book, but I'm kind of trying to read Banks as a real psychological man. And that's, that would be the conclusion that I draw. I mean, I think also there's something about Kate, about how um, lost she has been, that to care for her is to kind of forsake himself in some way that that is just crucial, it seems to Banks. Crucial for him to be able to kind of give away himself in care for another. Hmm. What do you think? What do you think about that relationship with Kate? And, and like this, this um, seeming embrace of everydayness. I think that everydayness is for most of us, not for everybody, but for most of us, it is our only salvation. Mm. <laughs> because it is the thing that most of us are asked to be faithful in the everydayness, right? To get up and to take your kids to school, to do math again, to care for your father, for you and your family. And like, we have these souls that were made for glory. And yet we live in the world that just requires a ceaseless amount of steadfast care and investment. And I think that that is the way that most of us experience martyrdom in the life of Christ throughout our journey here on earth. And so I think that the rejection of everydayness in this novel is a rejection of his own salvation. Mm. And, and so the fact that he chooses to marry and settle down, it's not that there's anything magical in marrying hate that makes him a better man, but to your point, it's not that he had to marry her in order to be saved. It's that, that life is for most of us, the thing that is required of us on the Mm. pilgrimage of the Christian, the thing we must submit to, the thing we must say, I am (laughs) in defiance of Aunt Emily, right? I'm an ordinary man. Mm. I'm not special. I don't get to have this giant, beautiful, big, fulfilling, meaningful life that I think I ought to have. I'm never going to live in, I'm never going to be a movie star, right? But in some ways for him, the movie going, the search for meaning is found. This is such a paradox, right? At the end of the movie, when the hero settles down with the girl, that actually Mm -hmm. is the perfect ending to every movie. Yeah. I, I think before, um, Earlier in the book, our moviegoer Binks sees that as kind of sidestepping the search. And I think now, having gone on the search, 
he's come to a place where that that marriage can be redemptive because he has like actually taken the journey. I think he's been a little bit suspicious of movie endings in which the main character doesn't really undergo the journey. They undergo some physical trial or some psychological test, but it's not really the search that Binks is on. It's something different. And I think he's found, I think he finds the solutions to those movies kind of lacking. Yeah. But I think it's different for him being with, with um, Kate because yeah, even though he says he's like forsaken the search, ah, he kind of, he was walking that path for a while. I think he like learned a great deal about the solution that he ends up with um, because he had, he had to go on that search. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I think that he's, I mean, looking at, looking at his marriage, I, I don't think there's much likelihood that it's going to be a particularly happy or fulfilling marriage. Um, mm. I mean, I could, I'm willing to, I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, but neither right. of them are happy people. This isn't, you know, he did not pick like the nice sweet little librarian who's, you know, who he mocked at the beginning of the right. novel. That's why I bring up the librarian, which actually sounds like a super cool job to me. Um, but like, she's, she's a very complicated person. She clearly right. speaking as a psychologist, right? I'm not a psychologist, but I have training in diagnosing. I would give her a borderline personality disorder diagnosis. Oh, really? Really? So there's, there's not, so it's not what the reason I'm saying this, I'm trying to articulate. It is not that he's met the perfect girl and they're going to settle down and live happily ever after. Right. There's right. a lot, there's a lot that is required of him and of her in living a life mm-hmm. together. And, mm-hmm. um, and they've already rejected the Aunt Emily kind of, um, life but Solution, at the same yeah. time he's also going to medical school and settling down and doing exactly what emily wants him to do he's just not willing to be the hero of the family anymore so it's it's all just in some ways it <laughs> we begin back at the beginning right like um so many of these modern novels kind of end with this ordinary story there's no big mm. epiphany it's just you keep going you put one foot in front of the other in a world that stinks to you and you see, you seek for you seek for transcendence and the only wrong answer is to just reject it outright which is yeah. where he was going with it and now he seems to have been converted from thinking that life is meaningless and now trying to find some meaning in the everydayness instead of just right. rejecting it right heidi that's a great place to conclude um our reading of the movie goer Next week, we will have a question and answer with our listeners. That's always a great deal of fun and also a great deal, a a great opportunity for um, anxiety for us, especially if we don't pre-read the questions. We often get stumped by our listeners. They're such good questions. Stump us, yeah. Everybody has such good questions. And this is a tricky book. It would be very likely to stump me at least. So give it your Um, best shot. Heidi, the year that this book won National Book Award, it was up with, like it had really stiff competition. 
um, Catch-22, the Joseph Heller book, was also nominated that year. This book beat Catch-22. Catch-22 is an absolutely fabulous Mm. novel. To anyone who's not read it, an absolutely fabulous novel. Uh, It also beat Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger, which is also a lovely book. Um, Same author as Catcher in the Rye, of course. This book one. This um, was a dark horse. It came out of nowhere. It was a dark horse. It, did, it really did come out of nowhere uh, to win the 1962 National Book Award. Uh, dear listeners, please find us on Facebook. Um, we would love to get your um, questions about this book, about anything we've said during the podcast, clarifications, challenges. We love it all. Bring it to us. Uh, of course, the easiest way to find us is on the Close Reads Discussion Group Facebook page. Um, if you are not yet a Patreon supporter, we encourage you to go to patreon.com, search Close Reads, and find one of those price pegs that uh, would work for you and for your budget. We would really appreciate that. And if you do that, you can hear Heidi, you can hear the long lost voice of David Kern, and you can hear Ian Andrews as they go through The Fellowship of the Ring, J.R.R. Tolkien's first book of his trilogy, The uh, Lord of the Rings. So it's The Fellowship of the Ring. No, it's the first book. Can we plug Richard um, the second yet? You know, yeah. Let's. We might as well plug it. We Heidi and I are doing on the companion podcast to Close Reads, which is called The Play's The Thing. We have just begun... Richard the Second. That's not even true. We've done three acts of Richard the Second. The first is yet to be released. Um, it's going to be released very soon. And we love, I mean, it's no, it's not hidden on anybody who listens to this show. Heidi and I love William Shakespeare. We love us some Shakespeare. And Richard the Second is bringing it. I was not that familiar with the play, having gone through it with you. Heidi, I can see why you are such a big fan. I'm a of this huge play. zealot. I'm like a uh, giant. You should be zealot, and I know I've been just like. And furthermore, more <laughs> to love this play. So it's a play that inspires zealotry. It's terrific. So well, you can if find you it there. Hear Heidi zealotry. Heidi White zealotry. <laughs> tune, in. tune in to the plays. To the, the thing. plays. The thing. Second series. Uh, we want to thank you all again for listening. It is uh, We feel like we have the most supportive crew in the entire podcasting business. True. Uh, let us recount the ways. <laughs> so thank you again. It's been a real pleasure to go through the movie goer and we look forward to your questions and we look forward to hopefully providing decent answers to you uh, on our last episode, which will drop next week, the movie goer Q&A episode. Until then... Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, happy reading. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.